listening to the Carleton Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Ami, one of the PhD students with the program. Traditionally, the fall is a time of transition, not only in terms of weather, but for students to begin a new year, to enter a new classroom, a whole new environment. However, COVID-19 has changed things. For teachers and teaching staff at Carleton and universities across the country, this has meant engaging in a pedagogical shift unlike any time in history, and moving instruction almost entirely online. This continental shift has come with its fair share of challenges, challenges that professors, teaching assistants, and students themselves are trying to find solutions to every day. How can one create a meaningful educational experience for students online? How do we foster community in a socially distant environment? And are there actually opportunities for innovation hidden deep within distance education? And how could these pave the way for progressive and enlightened pedagogy? To discuss these questions more, I'm joined by Professor Jonathan Malloy. A pillar of our little community here at Carleton, Professor Malloy has been with the Department of Political Science for over two decades, taking on the role of department chair from 2012 to 2018. A renowned expert in Canadian politics, as well as mentorship and career development for graduate students, Professor Malloy is the current Bell Chair in Canadian Parliamentary Democracy and will chair the CPSA Annual Conference next year, a Congress 2021. Thank you, Professor Malloy, for joining us today. It's great to be here. So it's been six months since the world's changed and the pandemic caused this huge sort of retrenchment of life. And it's happened in academia as well. So I was just wondering if you could take us back to that moment. What was it like for you when you got that stay-at-home order? And how did the department and perhaps Carlton more broadly uh, take on that decision? Well, it, it's really striking uh, to, to look back. And I was recently looking back at, at some of the... Uh, uh, emails and documents and things from early March, uh, just when the pandemic was clearly coming to Canada, but we had, you know, we had no idea about you know, just how much, uh, what we'd have to do about it. And it's really striking. I remember particularly the the week of uh, what would have been, I guess, March 9th. Uh, I remember uh, my class was on uh, Wednesday afternoon. I remember on Tuesday afternoon, I had office hour and a student came to me wearing a mask, which I found kind of surprising. And the student uh, asked me if I was planning to move my class online because of the, the coronavirus. And I was very concerned. And I, you know, I sympathized with the student, but I thought, well, I, I don't think we'll be doing that. We're not moving online or anything. We'll just sort of have to maybe be a little more careful, wash our hands more, etc. Uh, and then the next day I had the class, which turned out to be my last in-person class. And I remember I made some remarks about the coronavirus one point, and a student put up their hand and said, Laurentian University just closed entirely, which shocked me uh, because they did have an early outbreak. Um, and then that class ended, and I never, I never would have thought that that would be my final in-person class for who knows how long. Uh, and then further the next day, on the Thursday, uh, I stood on the University Board of Governors. And I must say that was a very interesting Board of Governors meeting that afternoon. <laughs> uh, it went several hours, and just during the, during the course of the meeting, uh, it was clear that the mood had changed a bit. The university was certainly taking uh, the coronavirus, as we called it back then, very seriously. Uh, but the idea of actually uh, closing the university to all in-person classes, moving online, uh, was just something that no one could wrap their minds around. Uh, and in the middle of that meeting was when the province of Ontario announced that schools will be closed for three weeks, which shocked us. Uh, 
and, and just on and on. I can remember a number of just times and meetings all, all that week where it just, it just gradually moved and, and things that we just could not contemplate 24 hours later started to happen. And, uh, and so if you look back at sort of emails and documents of that time, it's, it's striking to see uh, just how we just couldn't imagine uh, what, what was coming by any, by any means. Uh, but at the same time, I think we did, we did adapt and, to get the second part of your question, I think what helped sort of the department and, and Carlton took on the decision. I think I'm really happy with, with the transition we did. Uh, the idea of moving all courses online, almost inconceivable, I think worked fairly well. I think in the department and at Carlton generally, uh, I think considering the, the momentous nature of the task, um, I think it was reasonably smooth. I think the university took a flexible approach in terms of letting instructors uh, make decisions based on their courses. Uh, in some other universities, um, they were much more directive. They essentially told instructors what they could and cannot do, or instructors had to get approval for any changes. Uh, Carlton took quite a light touch, which I think was the appropriate touch. Uh, and so I would say that the winter term moved online about as seamlessly as it could have under the circumstances. So I would say that, you know, I mean, and I'm really, I'm frankly really happy with how the university and uh, and, and my colleagues in the department were able to, to make this transition. You know, this, ex this completely unimaginable scenario uh, took place. And I think people took it in a good stride. They uh, listened to public health authorities. They realized that uh, we had to be innovative. We had to be particularly compassionate uh, for students who were caught in all these areas. And that was a big part of it was uh, just the, the effect on, on students. So overall, I think we, we, we handled it, I think, uh, reasonably well. But the decision-making was just, um, it was just amazing how fast we had to make decisions and how much the circumstances changed. And I must say, speaking as a scholar of public policy, someday we're going to look back on all this and, and, docu and document it more thoroughly. And it's going to be an absolutely fascinating study of, of, of decision-making. So uh, for me, for me personally, I think for, for all, it was just, it was a huge mindset change. And now six months later, it's just, it's, you know, we're, we're so used at this point to social distancing and, and other and, and staying at home and other norms like that. But it's just, if you go back to say the first week of March, no one could have contemplated anything like this. And yet that this is where we ended up. And uh, so I'm, I'm happy that we, I think that we uh, as a university and institution uh, handled it about as well as we could. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned that sort of institutional response, because when we look at post-secondary institutions in Canada, we can see there, there's like there's some variation, but for the most part, there's pretty broad consistency in terms of taking on that stay-at-home order and going online. Then you look at like kindergarten to grade 12 education, and it's it's a lot different. There's not that sort of seamless transition and more questions. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's there's a few reasons. I mean, first is the part about about post sector education institutions in Canada. I, I must say, I'm I'm pretty happy as well. And I'm, it sounds like I'm patting patting ourselves on the back. To I hope not too much. But the way the Canadian post-secondary educational um, sector has adapted uh, to COVID, I think, has been pretty good. Uh, institutions have largely moved online. Um, some universities are holding some in-person classes, but Carleton has gone, you know, to all extents, completely online. And, and that's been the norm uh, for almost all Canadian institutions. If you compare it with, say, the United States, <laughs> right below us, where it's quite a chaotic approach, where uh, most institutions did plan to re remain largely in person. Some then uh, have reverted back to online very suddenly. Uh, and it's just, it's a huge uh, chaotic mess in, in the United States. 
Um, and that reflects, that reflects a number of things. I think one thing it does reflect is that in the United States, there's a stronger model of residential education where uh, students uh, go away to school, they live on campus, and, and that's the model of the environment, particularly the, the most prestigious schools. In Canada, you know, most, most, the majority of students are commuters who, who live at home with their parents. Um, and it's, we just have a few institutions that are really primarily residential. And those ones have, have, are, are going more on in person, such as uh, St. Francis Xavier, Acadia. University, Queen's up to a point. Um, so they've been more in person, but just generally the Canadian post-secondary sector has largely moved online and with, I think, relatively little contention. <laughs> there's lots of implementation issues, but there's a broad consensus on the way to go. Uh, but it comes, though, to, I think, to, um, to K-12 to education, that's the main part of your question here, um, it's obviously much more difficult. Um, and I, I would identify a number of factors there. I think one is that uh, K to 12 public education serves a number of, of public purposes. Uh, it, of course, is about ed educating and, and, chil and children, first of all, that. Uh, but it's all schools are just integrated into our society in a, in a, in a wider uh, sort of way. They serve a much wider uh, population. Uh, and parents are very involved in post in, sorry, in K to 12 education in a way that they are not in post secondary education. And so when you look at the, the um, I won't quite call it chaos in Ontario for K-12, but certainly uh, quite a disarray and a lot of discontent. Um, a part of it is because there's a number of different um, actors involved here. Um, government, uh, teachers, school boards, of course, which have their own sort of role here. Um, and parents, of course, are really the dominant actors. It's not the children themselves, generally. Um, it's the parents who are the, the main uh, sort of stakeholder, so, so to speak. Um, so it's it's a much more complex environment going on. Uh, there's just a, uh, there's a lot more uh, I think uh, complexities at stake. Whereas to go back to the post secondary sector, um, again, you know, parents and other stakeholders can be involved, but it's primarily about uh, serving adults, adult students who are uh, should be able to make their own decisions and uh, and 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 conduct themselves in certain ways and manage their own their own uh, studies. Um, so you know, it's it's frankly a lot simpler for the post secondary uh, sector. And whereas for the K to twelve, I just I, I I look back at what's going on in Ontario, uh, in, in all in all provinces, and um, it's it's such a difficult situation. And to me, part of it's because there are just so many stakeholder groups. There's clearly no single right course of action uh, for going. Uh, uh, there's no single sort of a solution. Um, you know, money can solve some problems, but it certainly can't solve all, all of them. All of the issues here, it's a much more complex policy environment. So um, I think uh, we're seeing a lot more um, uh, uh, variations uh, with with in the K to twelve sector because you know, it's, it's in the end of it, it's about every small individual school. There's you know dozens and dozens of schools in Ottawa alone. Uh, there's school boards, there's the Ministry of Education, there are um, uh, teachers and teachers' unions, uh, and there are parents. And, and, of course, there are the children, the students themselves. So it's, it's a much more complex environment where decision-making is much more difficult. And again, you know, post-secondary education is, is pretty complex itself. But in this case, uh, it's, the parameters are more simple, and the stakeholders, I think, are, are more simplified than, than K-12. to And so, as a result, we've been able to move much more with a consensus approach uh, and relatively good implementation in post-secondary education compared to the, uh, you know, the, the, the kaleidoscope disarray that is K to, the K-12 to sector. Excellent. I want to go back to something we'd spoken about earlier, and that's online instruction. Because to me, it's this really fascinating thing. Like, you know, you mentioned how in the winter semester, there's this kind of just general push towards it because we didn't have a choice. And there was for a while there people, professors, students, teaching assistants, supporting staff, we were all really struggling to adapt. 
Um, but as someone who's been teaching at university for a while, what do you think are the biggest challenges with this move online? And do you look towards the move online and see any opportunities for innovations or better pedagogy along the way? Well, that, that's a great question. So there are two sort of questions there that I think work well together. Um, in terms of sort of the biggest challenge of the move online, I think from the instructor point of view, uh, the biggest challenge is simply having to adapt and change so much uh, that to try and to uh, to adapt all of your teaching techniques, approach, content, assignments, and everything uh, to an online environment. That's that's a huge challenge. But I, I think it's there is, as they say, a silver lining to every cloud, and uh, this is a case where you know that there has been uh, an opportunity to change and adapt. And I will say, fr frankly, I think for a lot of instructors like me who have been doing this for uh, quite a few years, um, you know, it's useful to have the impetus to rethink uh, your course. And uh, I mean, it's certainly been challenging for instructors to have to sort of you know, to really think about their entire course from top to bottom, uh, that about every every aspect, every assignment, every all the content and all that, trying to decide uh, how to move it online, whether it needs to be done there. So it's certainly been, been a, a very daunting task. Uh, but there is certainly, I think, the pandemic and moving online has, and, and many people said this, has really led to probably the uh, the, the biggest advance and revolution in, in uh, teaching pedagogy ever <laughs> in post-secondary education, because everyone has had to really uh, go zero-based and rethink from scratch how they teach courses and what to do. So, and I don't want to minimize the disruption, the difficulty for, for instructors having to do all this, uh, but it, I think it has al allowed people to, to try new things, uh, to realize that there are a number of advantages to the online environment, uh, that perhaps some things that the DISCI were always doing in the in-person class could be jettisoned without a lot of uh, impact on the learning uh, outcomes of the class. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been difficult, but it has uh, had helped instructors to rethink. Uh, from the student point of view, uh, again, I think there's there certainly are both advantages and disadvantages. Um, you know, I think one thing that I think people have immediately focused on quite rightly is issues of access, uh, that uh, to, uh, to be taking courses online requires um, uh, reasonable access to technology, uh, to, uh, to a laptop, to Wi-Fi, to, uh, to, to, to Wi-Fi, to and other, and other access like that uh, for a space in, in their home, whatever their home is, to be able to, to work, et cetera. There's all sorts of sort of issues there. And a lot has been raised about how students are going to have un, uneven access uh, to this. Uh, and uh, Carlton has uh, certainly devoted some resources to that. There is a fund uh, for students to get uh, a modest amount of money towards um, uh, a, a, a new technology. Uh, so uh, the university has tried to address that a bit. Uh, but certainly that's that's a, that's a big issue is that um, for a lot of students, it's been their access issues. I should say for instructors as well. Often sometimes they have to struggle with that uh, as well. Um, the, online, the online classes mean, of course, that students are not... Um, uh, on campus, they're not interacting with each other in person. Uh, there are some opportunities to be involved in campus activities, clubs, and so on uh, online. But obviously, it's 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 different than 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 in person. It's much more uh, restrained in how you can do that. Um, I would say though again that what I'm just observing very very anecdotally and very um, you know. Uh, 
sporadically just in the initial weeks of, of the term. But it does seem that students are connecting a lot online, more, I think, than they would have uh, otherwise, uh, because all the classes at Carleton are online. Uh, uh, students are, inter- are doing other interactions online. So they're setting up a lot of their own uh, communications, often through social media and other things, things that the university does not use. We can't really use for <laughs> officially for uh, privacy reasons. But, uh, but students are setting up their own uh, their own groups on social media and on various uh, platforms, many platforms that often a person like me is only dimly aware, even aware of. <laughs> um, so students are connecting uh, uh, online, I think, in a way that they probably might not have if they've been sitting in an in-person lecture. So uh, hopefully there are at least, again, some opportunities. The, the, move, the move to online has been so disruptive. It's come at a lot of cost for a lot of people. But uh, certainly, I hope that some aspects are actually improving, that there's, there's actually an improvement in, in, in learning uh, in some ways uh, for the class. So that's, this is just kind of anecdotal over early weeks into the fall term. Uh, but it's certainly not all bad. Um, I, I think we're certainly not going to be teaching online forever. I certainly think that there's, there's a big thirst to coming back to in-person classes, to the more, more um, face-to-face interaction um, with people. But uh, you know we've 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 had a chance to really test online learning, and I think a lot of uh, of skeptics have realized that there are advantages to it. At the same time, I should say that a lot of people, uh, a lot of uh, should we say prophets of online technology, who said that online was a solution to everything, uh, have also been proven wrong. So some things just can't be replicated. Some things are not as good. Uh, but but overall, so I think the whole the whole move I think to online instruction. Um, has been challenging, but there's definitely uh, been some uh, uh, good opportunities and advances that have come out of this as well. One big disappointment for many in the academy was the loss of conference season this year. I mean, just anecdotally, everyone I know was meant to go somewhere. I had four conferences personally that were end up being canceled because of the pandemic. And you know, I know you're chairing CPSA next year, which is one of the largest Canadian political science conferences there is. Just wondering, do you have any thoughts on how conferences can evolve and adapt to meet the challenge of COVID nineteen? Another great question, and I mean, I think that's a question that a bit like the teaching of things that there's been a lot of disruption, um, a lot of problems, but possibly not, not possibly surely um, some opportunities out of all of this. So yeah, I think that I think that for a lot of academics in particular, the loss of conference season has been has been uh, a, a big deal. Um, uh, for me as well, there are a number of, of conferences that I was planning to go to. Uh, they were always very stimulating and exciting. It's a chance to travel. It's a chance to do new things. And, and all that, of course, has disappeared. Um, and I think that back uh, when, when the pandemic uh, was first declared, um, and very quickly some conferences like ISA, for example, collapsed at the last minute. Uh, and I think it was very short-term, I think. People realized that, uh, that sort of the spring conference season was clearly uh, uh, not going to happen, but that you know, even that took a while there. Um, I, I think back in March and April, no one was really thinking we had lots to think about the time. No one was really thinking long-term about, about the fall, winter, and well into 2021. Uh, what would happen? We were focused, rightly, I think, on the short term. And it's quite clear that now, here we are talking in September uh, 2020, that uh, this is going to go on for a while. That, I mean, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to make speculations about the long-term nature of the pandemic, about vaccines, and that all we know is that when it comes to people responsible for planning conferences, including the Canadian Political Science Association meetings, which are indeed scheduled for uh, early June 2021 as part of the Congress of the Social Sciences and Humanities, um, we have to make decisions now about what that format is going to be. Um, and so um, I, can't, I, can't, I can't tell you exactly what the decisions are yet for 
uh, uh, next June. Uh, but I will say certainly that we're, it's highly unlikely we're going to have a traditional in-person conference. Uh, and it will be almost certainly at least uh, partly online, perhaps entirely online. We're, we're having discussions about that right now. Uh, just as other, other conferences scheduled for early, early 2021 are already going fully virtual there. So um, you know, we're, we're going to be doing virtual conferences for some time. And I think it's, again, a chance, as with teaching, it's a chance to rethink conferences entirely. Um, I've always been a very big fan of academic conferences, uh, both large and small. I found them to be very useful and very useful to, be, to do in person because you can uh, attend attend and, and hear, hear people's work, hear presentations, ask questions. But it's also the, all the interaction, all the informal interaction with people, uh, uh, whether it's sort of meeting new individuals, meeting old friends, uh, having having discussions and all that. It was always just a tremendously uh, stimulating uh, experience, uh, the, full, the full range of, con of conferences. And with online conferences, you know, you can replicate a little bit of that, but you just you just can't have the same degree of informal contact, uh, especially sort of informal, sporadic, random contact in, in conversations that one has has an in-person uh, conference. Um, so uh, I think for the short term, you think people are doing their best to try and replicate what they can for conferences. So the uh, the American Political Science Association had their conference uh, on the virtual uh, online. Uh, in early September, and by all, all accounts, it was reasonably successful. It was basically basically the absolute conference with standard panels and everything, all held at the at the regular times. And I think people did find it to be a reasonable experience. Perhaps not the same as as traveling, uh, but but reasonable. And so I think you know, I think down the line we are we are going to see um, uh, virtual conferences where people are making best efforts. And it may not be it's not it's not the same as as in person travel conference. But uh, it can still be a stimulating intellectual experience to hear other people's work uh, and, and to comment on it. And of course, the big the big thing this is where we're getting to sort of rethinking conference entirely is um, you know one of the huge benefits about a virtual conference is that you don't have to travel anywhere. You know that's that's the downside you don't have to travel. But you know there's there's a, there's so much discussion these days more and more about the accessibility of conferences, particularly for uh, for people who do not have uh, uh, tenured positions, who do not have uh, access to uh, to grants and funds for travel. Um, you know, conferences are can be expensive, and uh, it's certainly something that there's I think a lot uh, a lot of discussion awareness about about um, whether conferences even before the pandemic should have gone more virtual or should have had more virtual um, elements uh, to be more accessible to people so that they did not have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars uh, to attend the conferences. So I um, I think that uh, again part of moving to virtual is that you know maybe that some conferences will will stay entirely virtual, that they can really meet a lot of their objectives of presenting um, uh, scholarship and, and, and discussing quality ideas uh, in person in, in, with a virtual conference that uh, can be put on at, at very low cost, not no cost often. There's going to be a lot of technical <laughs> technical uh, uh, cost in putting these on, uh, but certainly uh, it doesn't pose the same sorts of, uh, of travel costs uh, for, for in individuals. So, I mean, some conferences may, be turned, may, may stay on virtual because in the end, people will not be forced to spend lots of money just to go and, and present a paper. Um, but also, I do hope that also it will spur a lot of conferences in the long term. And I'm sure eventually we will be meeting back in person. It will spur a lot of uh, conferences to really think carefully about the value that they're delivering for conferences. And I've, I've certainly been at conferences. I've seen people attend conferences where you, know, you really just sort of show up and have the panel and presentation. And, and that, that's, that's about all. There isn't necessarily much else or certainly 
uh, not a great deal of sort of added value. And sometimes you think, well, you know, we could have just done this online. Um, I think that most most conferences, and certainly the Congress of Social Sciences and Humanities, uh, which the which the CPSA meets as part of, has always tried hard to really make the in-person experience a big part of it. With, for example, book exhibitions, interactions, uh, lots of social events and things there. They've always tried really to bring to bring value to actually traveling and having the in-person conference. And I think there's going to be uh, even more emphasis on that. I think. Uh, Following all of this, I think that every conference organizer is going to have to rethink very carefully what's what's the value that we are putting on for this conference. We're asking people to pay registration fees, to travel, uh, to take time away from their families, whatever, to come. Um, what is the value that we're delivering? And so hopefully there'll be a lot of, uh, of focus on delivering uh, really good in-person experiences, lots of whether it's informal experiences, interactions, whatever. You can be creative there. Uh, so I think in the long term, hopefully, um, uh, as with teaching, there's been a lot of disruption, a lot of disappointment, uh, but hopefully again, it will actually force us to sort of rethink things a bit and really give good value for the in-person experience and realize that often in other areas online might be quite quite reasonable and might, and might achieve the goals. So we're, we're forced to rethink a lot of things here. Yeah, but that's how innovation happens, right? Meet a problem. It, it absolutely is. <laughs> The last kind of question I want to ask um, on this topic is, you know, for many students who've been at Carleton and other universities abroad, you know, this has marked a huge change in terms of how they engage education. But there's also a great number of students who are new to our community here at Carleton, and this is their first foray into post-secondary education. For those who are taking those first steps under these extraordinary circumstances, what advice would you give? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's obviously very challenging, I think, for any, any particularly uh, first-year student uh, joining, joining uh, starting university, but it's starting undergraduate, also just first-year graduate students, perhaps new to Carleton, uh, coming in. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously a pretty strange experience to be starting online. Uh, normally, when, when, uh, when, when people start at university, uh, the university makes a big, a big push to try and, and give them a, a pro- orientation, to connect people, etc., uh, to uh, give them get, to really socialize them into the campus community. Um, and when, you, but when you're restricted to online only, and people are you know, not really even located in Ottawa, um, that's a lot more challenging. You can you can do some things online, but uh, you can only do so much. People can only <laughs> only be comfortable interacting so much through through a screen. Uh, again, you know, o- online always tends to be more formal in that way. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the a lot of the sort of the, the tools and tricks that universities have tried to use to particularly to socialize students and and, and give them the supportive environment early on um, are not not re- not really available. Um, on the other hand, I would say that uh, you know this there. Uh, there's still a lot that that can be done. I mean, I think that we've we've tried very hard to uh, put to develop good online courses. There's a lot of variants. I have to say, people are trying different things and all that. But soon we've tried to make sure that the learning experience for students uh, is largely uh, un, unharmed by by all this disruption. And uh, I think as I think, and this would be my advice to students, uh, regardless regardless of pandemic or not, in person or online, like that, uh, is holding up the students. To, to make the most of the opportunities that university gives them. They can sit through the lectures, they can complete the assignments, uh, that, but uh, they, they also need to really sort of look for opportunities to reach out. Uh, the one thing I always recommend to, to, um, to uh, new students, again, undergraduate, graduate, is to reach out to faculty, like that. Faculty are, are, faculty are always are interested in interacting with students, uh, but obviously we respond better when the students reach out to them, out to us. The students make it clear that they're interested in, in chatting with us and we're always happy to do so. So building relationships with, with 
uh, instructors, I think, is always uh, a key. Um, that can be more challenging in a, large, in a large course, and there's hundreds of students there, but you can still reach out. And I think, again, here's where online may be an advantage. I think that most um, uh, students today, particularly I think first-year uh, undergraduates, are much more comfortable, I think, uh, 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 conversing online, uh, texting rather than talking on the phone, et cetera. So I think hopefully for many students, they might actually feel more comfortable um, reaching out to, to their uh, to instructors uh, by, by, uh, by, by, by messaging, by email, whatever, uh, rather than you know, phoning them up or coming to their office hour, which very few students do in person there. So I hope students might actually feel more comfortable uh, because we're interacting only online and, and increasingly often asynchronously uh, uh, through, uh, through, through messaging. Um, students may actually feel more comfortable, hopefully, uh, reaching out and building relationships with instructors and then also with, with fellow students. And again, this is another thing that the university tries to do, but we can only do so far, it's up to students themselves, is to connect with each other. And so I would, again, really advise, uh, again, students, whether, again, new undergraduates or graduate students, um, to really reach out to each other. And again, uh, because we're in an online environment, uh, you may not, you may not, be able to see anyone see anyone in person like that or sort of you know bump it in the hall uh but you do have you do have uh, access to usually to, to people's names to contact information uh and to to reach out to build to build informal communities to be be prepared to make that first step to reach out and you know not everyone is going to respond but uh to really take some initiative to, to reach out there so uh i think that just uh, for all, all students co coming coming in making first steps at, at carlton or, or returning students as well um you know look look for the opportunities just reach out it can be difficult it can be daunting uh but but they are there um and i guess the last thing i would just say a bit is about ongoing resilience again i think again we're we are in a global pandemic. Uh, we are on all sorts of social restrictions. Most people are stuck at home, and home means different things for people in terms of circumstances. Um, that it can be very stressful for people. Um, uh, there's all, all sorts of things going on. And again, I would say, and again, I would say this again, <laughs> whether we were in person or online, um, uh, don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to reach out. Uh, you know. Reach, reach out to instructors, to TAs at first, if you're, have, you're having difficulties and things there. Uh, and, and please don't hesitate to reach out to, uh, to other parts of the university, to health counseling services, to the Office of Student Affairs there, uh, because you know, pe people, people are always struggling with, with mental health issues and issues. I, I do as well. Um, these are things that um, you know, pe people, have, people, have, people have had long before pandemics. And uh, but a lot of those have been exacerbated, obviously, by our circumstances there. And uh, so I do say, you know, to, to reach out for help. Don't 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 be afraid to to ask for help. Uh, to say you're struggling, that you have issues going on. Uh, uh, there are people really willing to listen. And um, and quite often, you're not the only person sort of struggling in this. You may have particular issues, particular uh, challenges to deal with. Uh, but everyone's struggling with 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 some issues, I think. And the more uh, the, you you reach out and speak up about them, uh, frankly, the better. Yeah, it's one thing I've I've kind of always said since maybe. 10 days into being at this program. I've been in big institutions and big departments, you know, U of T, York. I've never been in a department that's had the sense of community that ours has. And so I would just mirror that comment um, and repeat it as well. Um, people can reach out and will always respond, I think. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's that's great to hear. And I said, I mean, and community doesn't doesn't just happen. Um, you can't, you can't just, an institution can't just create it. <laughs> You can't create it by by memo or even throwing money at it sometimes can assist sometimes. Uh, it's because people choose to reach out to each other and, and, and to 
build and to feed and build up that community and uh, and and that's great that you experienced that and i know you you uh, also you you yourself give back a lot to that community so it is there uh and and people should you know, take take advantage of it and contribute to it so i've got one more question and this is relatively unrelated it's the question i pose to everyone i do these podcasts with and i think it's especially important for you because you're a pillar of that community at carlton what, what's the sort of stuff you've that's been scary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's part of the reason why it's so good here, right? But I'm just interested, I'm sure the people listening as well, uh, what what are you working on these days? I know you're on sabbatical, so perhaps you're not even working on anything, but uh, what, what sort of stuff's uh, been going on in the life of John Malloy uh, professionally? Sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll, the first, the little premise of your question there, I think is sort of interesting itself. I think that um, wh- whether I'm working at all on sabbatical, and I, I do say that I think in, in the academic world, uh, sabbaticals are very common for, for tenured faculty. It's usually part of our, our employment agreement. Um, but academics have a somewhat weird view of sabbaticals because sabbatical, I'm, like, I'm pretty sure the word means a rest from work. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that sets the roots in the Bible and elsewhere. What, what it means is a rest from work. Uh, and in other line, line uh, other lines of work and stuff, that people sometimes have are, have the opportunity of a sabbatical and stuff. Usually means exactly that they they leave their workplace, they they go off, they travel, they do something like that. But they definitely don't do their regular work. Um, in uh, in universities, it's a little different. A sabbatical means that uh, a, a faculty member is. Uh, relieved from their teaching work. They don't have to teach. Uh, they usually are exempt from uh, any service responsibility, so that sort of work. But it's all all because then they can surge ahead and focus on their research work <laughs> and be more and have a huge surge of productivity on their research, which is also work, I believe. So uh, so I always think there's a certain um, if it's I'm not sure if it's an irony or whatever that um, that for academic sabbatical means a rest from certain parts of work. So that you can really double down on, on on other work. So I think there's at least a contradiction there going on. So let's say. So having said that, I uh, I am on I am on sabbatical, which means I am not actually teaching uh, this this fall. Uh, I am I am still very involved in a lot of administrative and service things at the university, uh, perhaps more more than I should have, but I do find them interesting uh, to do. Um, but I, I am doing research, and the main thing I'm doing right now is I am uh, I am writing a book. That's been my main project all summer. Uh, is a book on the Parliament of Canada, which has been in, been in in, uh, in train for a little while, uh, but uh, there has there has not been a, a book written a comprehensive book written on the Parliament of Canada for over thirty years, uh, and uh, so I think that there's might be a need for a new one, and I've been thinking about Parliament for a long time, so I have been uh, writing writing this book. So that's been my main my main project is is is, is, is writing this book. Um, some of the things I've been looking at a bit uh, have been at uh, Parliament under COVID-19. Uh, that's always been really interesting to watch how the Parliament of Canada and also other legislatures in Canada and elsewhere have dealt with, uh, with COVID-19, with, uh, with social distancing in legislatures, with remote hearings and stuff. A lot of, again, a lot of innovation going on there, uh, but also a bit of confusion. Uh, as particularly as the, the parties have not all agreed on, on whether Parliament should meet remotely or what should be what should be done. So again, when, where there's confusion, there is, is that's often scholarly, interesting from a scholarly point of view. So uh, I, I wrote a very short piece about that in the spring uh, and I'm tracking that a, li- a little more. Uh, so I'm interested in that and some other a- aspects of, of parliament are sort of my main, and that's very much my remit uh, as the Bell Chair of Canadian Parliamentary Democracy. That's the sort of thing I should be uh, uh, working and thinking about. Uh, so those are some main projects. I've also been doing a lot of media commentary lately, uh, again, it's the, um, there's always interesting things happening in Canadian politics, and so I've been doing a bit of commentary on that as well. 
Uh, the other area of research that I've been doing, separate from parliamentary research, continues to be looking at PhD uh, career development in Canadian political science. So, uh, as you know, I did write a book with a co-author a couple of years ago uh, on doing a PhD in Canada in social sciences and humanities, and uh, my colleague Lee Berdahl and I, along with another another uh, colleague Lisa Young, uh, we have been doing some further work again, on attitudes towards PhD career development and skills uh, in Canadian political science. Uh, we just published an article with uh, PS, the PS Journal, the American Political Science Association uh, Journal, PS Political Science and Politics, I think the title is. Uh, we just uh, published an article this summer uh, on uh, faculty attitudes to career development in Canadian political science based on a survey that we did. And we are hoping to do a uh, student survey very soon, a survey of, uh, of, of graduate students, of PhD students in Canadian political science departments on their attitudes to career development. Uh, we were developing that in the spring. Uh, we thought that maybe the height of the pandemic was not the best time to run that <laughs> survey, uh, but we are planning to do that probably this fall uh, again as part. So that's another, uh, that's a separate area that continues to be a very interesting area of research for me. So that would be, those are the main things that I am, I am doing while I am on sabbatical. Excellent. Sounds great. I can't wait to read them. I mean, I, I read the last book and it was very helpful and actually reassuring for my decision to take on a PhD. So yeah, I can't wait to see the revised version of it. Yeah, well, that's, that's great to hear. So I said, the book's out and said, then we're doing any scholarly articles. I said, the latest one came out this summer uh, from the PS Journal and it should, it should be viewable there. All right. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time because I know you've got books to work on. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this stuff. This has been a great conversation. Well, it was great to be here. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poli sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poli dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.